Hello, and welcome to Working Title, a podcast where two writer friends stumble through books we love looking for writing secrets. I'm Leah, and this week I'm just exploring kind of writing different drabbles. I'm trying to experiment as a way to ease myself back into writing longer pieces again. Mm-hmm. Writing different, did you say drabbles? Drabbles? Yeah. yeah. Tell, I don't know what that is. Do you know what flash fiction is? Mm-hmm. It's even smaller than that. Love it. That's how I think about it. But some, I feel like it's often also used to mean that the writer is playing around with an idea. I like that. Onomatopoeia wise, absolutely sounds like I was like, I've never heard that word before, but I feel like I know what you mean. <laughs> and now that you've clarified, I was yes. like, yep, yep. That makes sense. That tracks. Uh, I am Dana, and this week I am mostly working on trying to come up with some uh, good new mm. like writing rituals is the way I'm trying to think about it instead of habits. I think habits to me <sighs> as a word has just started to feel very much like mm-hmm. mm. like things you should do, like obligations and boring things, whereas mm-hmm. rituals sound witchy and magical and cool. Um. So yeah, that's sort of actually my goal for this month is to try experimenting with different basically practices of like when to write and what to write. Yeah, I love what you said about setting up rituals as opposed to habits. It reminds mm-hmm. me of our Gail Carson Levine episode a little where she had the oh, writing yeah. spell. Habits feel very strict and rote because of how they're written about. Mm-hmm. Whereas rituals feel expansive. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. And on the one hand, it feels like such a silly thing to quibble over, right? And such a distinction to make. But we're writers who love words and care about writing. Like that, <laughs> it makes a huge difference to me and my brain. And that's who I'm trying to motivate. Yeah. <laughs> whether I think about these things as habits or as rituals and practices and things like that. Yeah, whatever encourages the the mindset to, to write more, I think is... You know, whatever, whatever silly, quote unquote, silly little thing you have to do, it's not silly if it works. We're here for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this week we will be exploring synthetic protagonists, uh, an area that has long held the imagination of science fiction writers and readers, whether as representations of our societal fears or explorations of what it means to be alive. (laughs) <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, Dana, we've read such a, a range of recent books and especially novellas. I'm wondering from your experience reading all of these, did you notice any common themes or just general commonalities? I will say this is this is such a uh, <laughs> silly, we're talking, we yay for silly things. Um <laughs> The number one commonality that stuck out, stuck out to me most from um, all of these, and so the main the main books that we are sort of focusing on, right, are uh, the Murderbot Diaries, especially mm-hmm. the first one, uh, All Systems Read by Martha Wells, uh, Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, and Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers. And the number one thread that came out for me that ties all these together is that I'm deeply obsessed (laughs) with the robot protagonists like which is funny to me because if I were to actually like if you're actually looking for some you know craft level uh through lines these are very different characters Mm. in very different settings with incredibly different uh arcs that they go on journey wise but all three of them are my precious baby children that I would burn down the world for and on the one hand, like, is that a craft thing? No. But also, I think on some level, there's something there that I do want to pick apart and be mm-hmm. like, when we talk about synthetic protagonists, so like robots or AIs or whatever in stories, at least personally, I find them extremely compelling, even when you do them in so many different ways. Mm. And there's a lot... There's a lot there that I'm sort of just trying to explore and be like, what is it that makes this particular type of character so engaging to me? Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that 
I wonder if part of it is that so often, in a lot of ways, I think synthetic protagonists allow writers to more openly explore like I said, what it what it means to be alive mm-hmm. and can be more vulnerable in that exploration and more explicit in that exploration than a human might be. I think sometimes and not always it can come off as cheesy if a mm-hmm. if a human character does something that a lot of artificial or synthetic characters do. Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, there's like an understanding, right, that when you, when you want to look at questions and issues and things that are old, right, Mm -hmm. that have been around for a long time, you need to find some way to shift the perspective in order to make them surprising and new. Finding some way to make the thing that's aggressively normal surprising is really compelling and it can like prompt us to... Mm -hmm ask different questions and look at things in different ways Mm -hmm. and there's nothing like a synthetic protagonist experiencing some different version of uh, consciousness or seeing human behavior and reacting to human behavior to do that i'll just say certainly uh watching murderbot experience anxiety (laughs) feels like as someone with anxiety it's tremendously different to be like, yes, yes, right there where you're watching a robot who's like, this is bad and is is <laughs> experiencing it in, in very different ways in terms of like assessing their like, you know, numerical shifts in their internal metrics and all sorts of things that like, no, that's not my personal experience of anxiety, but it shows another aspect. Mm. It, it, it makes you look at that experience and ask questions about where it comes from because this is this is coming from an artificial uh artificially generated intelligence as opposed to something we just kind of take for granted from human characters that obviously experience these things it's harder to just ask those like basic questions and then often i think these characters can be a tremendous vehicle for hey so um sleeping's kind of weird huh sleeping why (laughs) why do you do gender in all of your language really (laughs) really well this is (laughs) that seems like really confusing when all the markers are different it's interesting because it can show us what is odd about society but also it can reveal some of society's prejudices something that i have become very fascinated by is thinking about how different these synthetic protagonists are from the synthetic and artificial life protagonists from like the 90s i'm thinking like the matrix uh terminator um Mm -hmm. oh what is it with the ai that is like i can't do that dave what is that from oh that's 2001 a space Odyssey. it is 2001 a space odyssey yes yes yeah that's a movie that i watched while deeply exhausted and most of us falling (laughs) in and out of consciousness for the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes but i remember the part with hal yes and Dave. Yes, the it seemed to me like we had such a fear about increased auto automation of different industries and this idea that robots are taking over your jobs, over your life, over everything. Whereas a lot of the ones in the stories that we read certainly, but also even in the new Matrix that just came out recently. Yeah. The robot protagonists are more endearing and I think also show us some of the the shortcomings of humanity not in like a humanity was so greedy that it you know xyz which is still part of a theme but Mm -hmm. they're exploring things like you said like gender gender is explored in ancillary justice it's explored in a psalm for the wild built there's a another book the long way to a small angry planet where bodily autonomy is explored. Like, why should we assume that an AI would would want a body? And what are the limitations of having a body? And what does that mean? Right. And how are, how are we treated? And I think it, it reflects so much some of the conversations that we're having within society at this moment about gender and bodies and how we treat one another and what we owe one another. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think that I think that distinction of like how we've how, you know, certainly popular culture in terms of robots and AIs characters um, how that has changed is a really interesting conversation, perhaps especially when we're talking about the Murderbot Diaries. Mm-hmm. Murderbot probably has, I'd say, more than, well, not necessarily more than the others, but in a very particular way, Murderbot is about a society that in many ways has continued all the same shitty industrialization mm-hmm. practices that those movies in the 90s were about. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Murderbot is constantly sitting there like, yeah, the company cuts so many corners, they're just out to, like, screw you, and all this automation has... But, like, automation is different from you've created a consciousness that just happens to be synthetic in some way, happens to be digital. And there's something really interesting thing, I think, I think about that pivot. Mm. Yeah, I remember yep. reading somewhere and wanting to. I still need to to dig into this more because there's a whole other context here that I haven't researched and and do not sufficiently understand. But I remember seeing um, an indigenous uh, literary expert talking about how indigenous futures, like indigenous futurism, often looks at you know the idea of creating artificial intelligence in a very different way from mainstream western understanding of that as a threat and how much more of these other futurisms look at we we could be creating kin yeah right we could be creating other beings that understand what it is to be alive and conscious in a similar way to human beings and that distinction is a really interesting one. And certainly, I mean, look, in these times, I will happily take any other optimistic ideas about what the future could look like. But I think it's really interesting because all all three of the books that we focused on, and I think many of the others that we're sort of talking about abstractly, have that kind of a sense, right? Even if the world isn't good, mm-hmm. even if the world still has a lot of the same problems, even if it's still about that kind of classic sci-fi conceit of what if our various arrogances and greeds get us to a horrible future where robots are everywhere. Mm -hmm. The robots are not our enemies in this, right? The robots are just another form of life that is experiencing the world that these arrogances and greeds will create and are potentially really tremendous allies, right? Yeah. Murderbots keeping people safe. Breck is saving the whole galaxy, many galaxies. It's not really clear how big the universe is we're talking about in Ancillary Justice. And Splendid Speckled Mosscap is sitting there and actually talking down our human yeah. protagonist about like, hey, you don't need a purpose. <laughs> yeah, Song for the Wild Built is so interesting because it's the most optimistic of all of the ones that we've read and it feels very purposeful. And mm-hmm. when I, the tweet that you mentioned, when I added that to our notes, I was thinking more of a Song for the Wild Built um, yeah. when I put that in there because I think there's there's a tendency to imagine our futures in a very pessimistic way I think sometimes to people it feels like writing optimistic science fiction is a lie. Uh, and I was yeah. talking to someone about this idea of optimism, and they they said that. And I think there's there's a difference between denial of reality and mm-hmm. like a radical optimism. A radical optimism requires you yeah. to face your wrongs, face what has happened, which is what what happens in a song for the wild built. Um, and also the, in the tweet threads, the writer also mentioned that we tend to bring in our, our sense of anthropocentric supremacy. And, Mm. and in the story, there are a few times where, uh, Mosscap is directly like, that was kind of silly for you to say, because our, our sibling decks still has a little bit of that, not even consciously. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I would bet that uh, 
some of what this writer was talking about is probably still different yet than A Psalm for the Wild Built, and there are probably more more things to explore there. And I that's part of the reason why I would be I would really welcome even more of a range of science fiction um, and more of a range of science fiction writers because of these, especially even when it comes to writing synthetic protagonists, because so often yeah. the core of the story is about humanity in a way um, and mm -hmm. what it means to have a soul and how we as humans relate to other forms of life and how they relate to us and again what we owe each other um so that that i'm i'm really excited that you you found that as well and um it stuck with you yeah, yeah such tremendously different stories and i agree like i just want mm. more because it feels like it's just scratching the surface in terms of digging in deeper beyond the what if the robots get smart enough to replace yeah. us and all of these stories are like what why is that why do you think that's the question none of these robots none of these synthetic protagonists mm -hmm. are engaging with mm -hmm. that question right and murderbot's probably the most directly counter to it because everyone's like oh, you've disabled your governor <laughs> module you're a free robot surely you'll kill us all and murderbot's like i just want to watch my soap operas please leave me alone what's more alive than that procrastination <laughs> Truly. <laughs> but, like, there we have a sort of direct, you know, like, counterpoint to, like, what? Why would why would a robot be like, you know what I want to do? I want to replace the humans. Yeah. Um, Breck has a whole other mission because they're, they've developed a whole sort of person with their own goals and motivations. Mm. And in, in Psalm for the Wild Built, all the robots were like, we just kind of want to go figure out who we are without your mm -hmm. system. So many of these are saying, like, that's not the right mm. question. Let's explore what some of the right questions or just some more interesting questions could be. And I think one thing I wanted to get back to too, because you brought up the way that these stories also are really interesting ways to explore particular like biases mm -hmm. and in specifically gender, which I think is really interesting to talk about because I think one of the things that I really, really like about so many synthetic protagonist stories is that on some level at least to me they feel kind of inherently queer mm. and more queer from like a political perspective right because queer right. as a word you know refers to when you're you're not cisgender and you're not or and or not straight you're some other gender identity you have some other different uh position on a sexual attraction spectrum but a thing that happens a lot of times when you are queer in terms of your gender or sexual orientation is that it kind of requires you to, when you're looking at your life and the way you're going to structure mm. your life, especially in terms of uh, romantic or sexual or relationships that lack either mm. of those, you kind of have to rethink how you're going to do it because so often the model and the expectation that you're handed from a societal perspective, already isn't going to line up for you, right? If you are a man who's attracted to other men, you already have to go back and be like, okay, the, th the thing that was just sort of generally handed to me by society is not going to work for me. I have to rethink this a little bit to figure out how I adapt that to my life and my world. And I think then, like, it often can be an entree point, not always, <laughs> not all... Uh, people who have queer identities go into this kind of political mm. direction. But I think a lot of times that can be an entree point to thinking about things from this perspective of how many other things are we handed by societal yes. expectations that we should question mm -hmm. and rethink. And it can be this, this incredible entree point to all sorts of things. And that sort of gets at the idea of like political queerness. And robots are that, right? Regardless of how we gender the robots, regardless of any sexual orientation or lack thereof, all of these synthetic protagonists on some level feel queer to me because they are approaching living from a perspective that is not the one that human society, certainly at least, you know, hands down to, you know, me. <laughs> right, yes. Not, they're not 
raised in the in the same way in, in a sense. Although I I think there's yeah. also a conversation to be had about not just like how um it's ha how we program them can affect them but then once they it's i think yes. part of the reason it it feels queer is because in some of these stories at least the gradual progress of gaining consciousness is breaking free from that programming and therefore being able to look at it in a new perspective or with a new perspective yeah well, and there's even, like, there is this more, like, abstract connection, but there's also just a direct yeah. metaphor of so often one of the questions being posed in these stories is, you know, are we just products of our mm -hmm. programming, right? Do we have free will or are we we just part of some directive and programmed in certain ways? And that's a question for in a very, like, are you are you the product of binary code? But for humans, that's a lot of, like, am I just what society yeah. told Nature me? Nature versus nurture. You know, is that nature versus nurture, mm -hmm. systemic influences. That's a question that we always have to struggle with as people to be like, how much of me is what I actually want? And how much of it is just stuff that's been baked in into my world and into some like a pretty clear parallel, if not, you know, exactly the same thing as programming and code is mm -hmm. for our synthetic protection. Yeah, and I feel like that is most front and center in Murderbot. And something mm -hmm. I appreciated about Murderbot was how it has this old sci-fi feel and its language and sometimes its pacing. Um, yeah. But the characters all feel very updated. And the issues that they're exploring yes. feel updated and deepened. And I'm, I'm thinking not just of things like Terminator, like the contrast between those, but also often... I was thinking about some of the sympathetic robot characters earlier on, and I'm thinking of things like Centennial Man, um, Data from Star Trek. You know I was going to bring up Star yeah. Trek again. <laughs> I was waiting for Data yeah, to come and, up. And uh, what is that movie where Haley Joel Osment's, you think he's a child the whole time, but then towards the end you find out he's a robot? I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, <laughs> well, the, the, <laughs> um, oh God, that movie made me sob. The, it's from the perspective of this little boy, uh, the woman, the mother, her child. I think you do know he's a robot the whole time, but he, he's effectively a child and you find out that her child died. And mm. so her way of kind of handling the grief is to buy this child robot but eventually she wants to move past that, and so she just abandons the robot. Damn. It's... Did, did Haley Joel Osment, did they ever let him be in any, like, cheaper <laughs> movies as a kid? God. Or was it just all bad all the way down? Maybe Secondhand Lions? Maybe. I oh. just, he's, there are a lot of, a lot of movies that, it, you know, at best it was like, oh, this one's just scary, not, not heartbreaking. Yeah. If Secondhand Lions, I mean... There are parts of it that did not age well, but it it was you know, he I guess he was more of a team, but you know he got to go live with his cool uncles and sure. tell stories and stuff. But anyway, that's that's beside, yeah, beside the, the point. point. We're talking about sad Haley Joel Osment as a robot. <laughs> uh, but a, a couple of things. Um, first, I feel like they always had to be endearing. They always had to be helpful. Uh, yes. either efficient or sweet or kind or in some ways kind of subservient. Mm -hmm. And like the way that they learned about humanity was through or what it meant to be alive was through this wide-eyed wonder like I have to learn what it means to be alive through humans and yes. what they do. And they're, they were just obsessed with becoming human. Like a lot of the episodes in Star Trek The Next Generation were really about, like, oh, Data, you're trying to be human, but you're just not quite. As opposed mm -hmm. to, like, it's okay for them not to be human, because they yeah. aren't. And also, it's okay for them to, in the case of Murderbot, kind of be sardonic and be annoyed with yes. their with their <laughs> life. I mean, Murderbot has, has been a smash hit. And I think part of the reason is because how many how many robot characters can you think of protagonist characters that are like I'm 
lazy and deeply scarred and uh he and he calls himself Murderbot. Like traumatized. If you give Murderbot an orphan, you basically just have like the Mandalorian, you yes. have the Witcher, right? Like Murderbot's <laughs> beleaguered uh just capability. Yeah. And just being like, I just want to not do this. And the world says, sorry, Murderbot. Um, nobody spoil. If I've still only have read the first two novellas. If Murderbot finds an orphan later, I lose all of my shit. <laughs> no, I, I think that that, I think that is really interesting. And talk about another parallel for like a lot of uh, marginalized groups, right? Like queer folks. So often mm-hmm. you would talk about how like some of the first gay characters on TV just had to be. You know, it had to be like, look, I promise, they're just nice. They're just Mm -hmm. nice, and they're, you know, here's how. I mean, that was still a slightly different perspective in terms of, like, the thing you're talking about in terms of the the robots are here to learn how to be people Mm -hmm. and to learn it from people because people are the, the experts and the source of how to be human. And all three of these main books dispute that in their own way. Yep. Right? Song for the Wild built quite literally because the robot is the one who's, like, actually got shit figured out more so than sibling dex yeah. even though sibling dex is clearly a very wise together with it person right like sibling dex is not a mess yeah there's someone who's like figured a lot of shit out and like is doing great things in their community and also still is being harmed and trapped by these different mindsets that the robots like you need to stop thinking you're so special mm. like people are not any different from other life forms Mm -hmm. not any more so than every life form is different from other life forms Mm -hmm. why are you putting all this weird pressure on yourself just just lit just chill right so we're learning to be more like the rest of the world yeah song for the wild build uh yeah murderbot spends his whole time being like why are humans so dumb why won't they just let me keep them safe like i literally told them how to survive and they should want to do that and they don't and then brack is also is like solving a problem that uh no one else is really addressing Mm. is is actually thinking about these things and is learning how to be human not from uh like seeing other people do it but by just caring about things enough she finds an identity and an identity that is powerful enough to sustain her once the rest of her is destroyed yeah because breck starts to give more of a shit just about the world around them like without it's they're not learning it from anyone they're just developing an identity by living in the world and caring about things and it is, I think you're right, I think it's a serious shift from the way that so many robots or AIs used to be portrayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Breck is, Breck is especially interesting because Breck is the only one of the main three that is both an AI and also mm-hmm. kind of a human, kind of not human body with implants rather right. than like something that seems to have been designed to be a synthetic yes. thing from the beginning of its exactly yeah creation and and also a kind of it's it's weird to see a character that breck was originally a completely different human before being subsumed into the AI. Yeah. Which that doesn't really seem to get explored very much. Like it's explored on a on a level of this is the impact of empire and there are a lot of discussions about that. And you see Breck in some ways because Breck's memories of the empire are as an AI caring for the empire soldiers. And so the perspective that Breck has on the Empire and also between, I guess, more like the perspective the Justice of Torrin has, because there are these two perspectives of Breck remembering being a ship with hundreds of bodies versus Breck being one body being cut off from all of this data, 
and all of this information and feeling kind of off kilter. I feel like there's there's so much going on there. Yes. And not least being what a great fucking play on the old fashioned trope of the robots are coming to replace us. Yeah. Right? Like that's quite literally our main character in this is an AI mm-hmm. that took over what was once a human body. Not because the robot wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> like, not because of the AI was like, you know what I'm going to do? Like, this was done under human orders. But I think you're right. Like, the there's so much of a conversation around, like, what it means to be human. But I think also on a, like, the micro version, the micro level version of that question is just questions about identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that definitely gets talked about, right? When Breck meets this doctor who's like, I can I can heal you. I can bring you back. And Breck is like, well, I am an identity. I am a person and a consciousness. I realize that you think you would like the person that had this body before to be in it, but I'm here now. It, my consciousness is also valid. And it was just like, talk about a really interesting, I mean, a great way too to like have your character constantly carrying around the weight of, this expansion and these the, the horrors of this empire even as they're going around and trying to yep. destroy it yes right yes like, yes exactly breck is absolutely trying to tear down a deeply corrupt system and they're in a body that only exists because of this system yep yeah the the conflict there i think yeah. is is really interesting and and like he was like, it's not enough to just explore identity um, and to to have not one, but two synthetic protagonists. I also want to talk about the impact of, of basically colonialism and empire. And what if we, wow. we tackle all of those things at once? A tall order. Well, yeah. And yet at the same time, like, becomes very clear as you read it and the expert job that she's done these things are all tied together Mm -hmm. in some really interesting ways and it is yeah i mean i think that question of identity there's something i want to say here too Mm -hmm. because i think as we're also talking about the distinctions between some of these takes on artificial intelligence and synthetic protagonists from older takes on Mm. it there is a tremendous value that I think we're bringing up a lot in terms of exploring identity, exploring queer identities, and neurodiversity, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's a an unhelpful trope where uh, some writers, and I think this was more often done in some older-fashioned robot stories, where the robot would be the, the non-binary representation or the representation of neurodiverse characters. Mm. And, like, nah... <laughs> always here for robot characters that are you know pushing boundaries and questions about gender and neurodiversity but if you're only a gender character you ever write is a robot if your only neurodiverse character is a robot you're doing it wrong because if you just want to talk about like weird things about gender hi there are people who don't fit in a gender binary there are plenty of people who are neurodiverse you don't have to come up with a robot just to be able to talk about it. Those people exist, and they're not robots. And that's key. I mean, that was also something that Psalm for the Wild built just absolutely fed my soul, right? Because, like, sibling Dex is like, hello, robot. Do you have a gender? Robot's like, nope. Dex is like, great, me neither. <laughs> it's like, yes, we can have and murder bot. Um, I, I feel like we see it less in the first book, mm-hmm. but having read the second novella, Murderbot's new adopted humans that it takes care of are like a queer polyamorous group, at least one of which uses neo pronouns. Like, queer people should be in your book. Your robots are not just like a weird metaphor for queer folks and neurodiverse <laughs> folks, or at least they shouldn't be, right? Like, please, I love those characters. And as someone who is queer and who is neurodiverse, I love being able to connect to them. But I'd like to be able to connect to some humans too, please. I am not a robot. I just love these robots. Yeah, I think especially when it, so often in the past, the implication was that something out of the main stream or mm-hmm. whatever, something quote unquote strange was naturally inhuman. 
Yes. And yep, yep, yep. What I appreciate about these new ones is is first they're not they're not trying to do something in the past which was again the thing that matters is your humanity and they're not trying to do something in the past where they're like anything strange is inhuman which hey is also very based on kind of this idea of what is quote unquote civilized and what is there's a lot of white yep. supremacy in there as well um they allow and are interested in exploring other forms of life they they hold space for robots to be different while also exploring more the kind of expansiveness of humanity and the, mm -hmm. it's about the expansiveness of life period and that's part of what what makes them so compelling i think no, I think it's really compelling. I could just talk about uh, synthetic protagonists forever. And yeah, from this more like philosophical, political, like let's just pick apart what these books mean. We could we could have an entire podcast about For sure. That. <laughs> um, but one thing that I too have been trying to, I've been trying to think about some of the craft aspects as well, yeah. not just my obsession. Um, though, you know, cultivating an obsession is a craft <laughs> thing, even if I don't know how you're doing it to me. Um, I think there's also something really cool about creating synthetic protagonists, especially if they are your main or one of your main viewpoint characters in terms of really enabling some interesting uh, or experimental like narrative choices in terms of like non-linear narratives or other ways to describe a situation occurring very ancillary right justice. like one of the first yeah one of the first things that happens in murderbot is that there's you know this attack on one of the people that murderbot is supposed to be protecting mm -hmm. and we see in the moment murderbot going through and getting them out of there and doing all these calculations and all of these kinds of things and we only find out later because someone's like hey you know, like responds and, and, and is like treating treating Murderbot kind of weirdly and it goes back and looks at the tape and it's like, oh, I was um I was talking that whole time. <laughs> I was talking to this person, but Murderbot was not aware of the fact that it was talking. It was just doing its job and its experience of the moment did not include the conversation that it was having. Total disassociation, but in a in a this sort of yeah, synthetic digital yeah. way. And then, yeah, absolutely, with uh, Breck and Ancillary Justice, there's plenty of moments where we're watching Breck experience knowing that something has happened with its code mm -hmm. that it Ooh. doesn't know how to do. Or yeah. just, like, really great, like, tense moments in Ancillary Justice are fascinating because it feels like Anne Leckie really thought about, hey, how might an AI being stressed look different from a person being stressed? Right? Like, we have the scene where Breck jumps off a bridge to save Savardin. And the experience of, like, and these constant calculations uh, and failure to calculate are just interspersing actual, like, dialogue and description. It is not an emotional scene. It is a very mechanical mm -hmm. scene. And it's interrupting all of those things. And then later on the station, we get a similar moment when Breck realizes that Anander Mianai has almost definitely figured out who it is and what it's doing there and is suddenly like trying to and like re realizing that its emotional responses are being yeah. read and surveilled yeah, yeah. and there it's a fascinating scene because it also it's not written the way that we are used to reading mm. very tense scenes like there's interspersed with all sorts of things that as a human you're like this is unnecessary weird but i mean our human brains do that too where you're like okay you're not going to necessarily act super rationally in a panic but what does that look like for a different kind of mind mm. and a different kind of consciousness i just think i think there's a, some really exciting opportunities there that you can see these authors taking advantage of where your protagonist experiences the world differently you get to articulate that experience in very different ways playing with linearity playing with you know, oh, the five senses. We're, okay, maybe it's not actually about that kind of sensory information. Mm -hmm. What does that look like for this very different kind of character? And you can really, you can craft a lot of surprise 
And similarly, like, address even things that we think we already know from a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Using that. I think what you said about crafting surprise is really true, and that, but that's part of the reason why it's also challenging, right? I think a lot of the mm-hmm. benefits of writing a synthetic protagonist are also the challenges. Absolutely. Absolutely. It requires thinking so far outside of your own experience in some ways, but also identifying what the possible similar similar experiences could be. And mm-hmm. in Ancillary Justice, something I kept thinking about was how do you write a character who is an unreliable narrator that during part of the narrative is close to omniscient? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and... Uh, and how do you how do you write about such a different experience of of being an AI? And part of it is that you're getting so many more sensory inputs, and that in itself can yeah. be confusing. But also, you in a way, even if you have developed some of your own consciousness, you're not fully in control of that consciousness. And so, there's even a lack of trust for Justice of Torin, which later becomes Breck because now Breck is only one part of what was previously a ship of an AI ship and also hundreds of people who are then part of the ship. And so there are parts that Breck has seen and remembers as a whole AI and parts that Breck only remembers as part of the AI. So piecing together those memories to figure out what happened to them and also what's happening around them. I think the use of flashback in this book were very effective in building tension and having a character who has experienced such a drastic change was a good way to kind of insert some of those the unreliable narrator aspects that Anne Leckie wanted to explore yeah I had not read Psalm for the Wild Build before Mm. but for both Murderbot and for Ancillary Justice. These were rereads for me. And I am so glad (laughs) to have done a reread of Ancillary Mm -hmm. Justice, which on the first read, I loved and adored and was absolutely one of those books that I put in a bucket of, I have no idea how you (sighs) even start this project. I am just like, there's some stuff where you can, you can see and you're like, ah, yes, I (laughs) hear I can pick apart these things. I think the last book that we talked about that felt that way for me um was uh starless sea the starless sea felt like i great i what amazing incredible i don't know how you did this at all and i feel that way very much about ancillary justice i i mean masterful to so quickly and effectively communicate an incredibly complex just character right before we get to the world like explaining who your character Mm -hmm. is and how they work and what's going on. Absolutely. And and yeah, the, the amount of information that is communicated mm. while telling a really <laughs> compelling story, yeah. I'm in awe. Reading it again was also great just to like pick up so much more of the narrative that was there and these like pieces that were buried and placed. And yeah, that was if any if anyone who's listening to this uh, if you haven't read any of these books, you absolutely should. If you read Ancillary Justice once, I highly recommend a reread. And, and, and it's a book that I, I understood. I'm not saying that it was like, oh, you need to read this book twice to get it. I, I enjoyed the fact that despite being so complex, it did make sense the first time around. I feel like I followed the whole thing. But it was great because the second time felt like I could just sort of sink into it a little bit more. And it was really, really satisfying. Yeah. I I think ancillary justice is definitely one of those books that benefits from multiple reads. I think all of them do, but in very different ways. All of them do. A song for a while built is like a, a little warm, snuggly blanket. That's a soul feeding book. That's a book you read when you're like, Trying to find, trying to do some reflection, trying to find some peace or some joy, or like trying to get back into reading because there's nothing better than just like a just a short, beautiful story. I would say that too for Murderbot yeah. for a different, but just like the novella, novella length is great if you're having a reading slump mm. right now. Yeah, highly recommend. Yeah, 
uh, our synthetic uh, protagonist novellas or, you know, romance novels is the old classic for me. But these ones are great also. Yeah, Murderbot, I, I read at the same pace that I would read a romance novel. Again, because it's yep. structured in that very episodic way. So it, it makes it easier and there are some, there are familiar, again, there are familiar character tropes with a twist. That's, that's what, whenever I think about the a common writing advice that people want the same thing, but different. Yes. <laughs> and Martha Wells was like, got it. Watch this. Uh, Watch this. That's exactly what I'm going to give you. It's, it, it's, so it's familiar, but fun and, and new at the same time. And something else that I was thinking about is how much of, maybe less so Murderbot, but definitely Ancillary Justice, and to an extent, a Psalm Psalm for the Wild Built, is just conversation. Mm -hmm. And all the conversations feel very different. Like, Ancillary Justice is a lot of, like, intrigue and political exploration there's a okay you know i love political intrigue i love it when two characters are saying (laughs) one thing and they mean something else they mean and they're both and both characters are aware that they're kind of lying to each other so much of that is an ancillary justice and i ate it right up i think i i appreciated about ancillary justice is that so many of the characters were very smart and all had their own aims and they could also very clearly see some of the flaws in each other and yet they would still fall into those flaws um yeah, yeah. like i'm thinking of of breck breck being like I don't care about stragan like stragan's the worst and then saving stragan and she's talk. breck is talking to another character you mean subverted oh, shoot yes it, they they were together for a decent chunk of the book, Dang and they it. both start with S. Okay, Stragan was the other one. Stragan was the one that was like, uh, Sephardi's gonna fuck you over. And Breck was like, mm, uh-huh. I don't know. And then, you know, gets fucked over, um, all while mm-hmm. denying that they they ever cared. Yeah. Murderbot as well as Murderbot's way of, of being like, I don't care is to... Like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm not human. I will die for you, but I don't <laughs> right. care. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The, I think the Witcher analogy was so good because <laughs> it really is. The same yeah. Vibe. I could. Geralta Rivia and Murderbot would just get each other. Yeah. They'd be like, I have no idea what you are or how, but I feel your vibes. Yeah. But, yeah. And they're um, similarly kind of. Uh, uh, marginalized by society but used when they're helpful um but then and then so they don't know how to react when someone was like i see you and i feel affection and they're like (laughs) (laughs) no no you don't the uh terror of being perceived do not perceive (laughs) me at all murderbot really is the poster child for please do not perceive yes (laughs) i love to i think i think what you're also getting at a little bit with the in Ancillary Justice, the dynamic between Breck and Savardin is such a great example of what you were saying earlier about an unreliable narrator, which is, a, again, a really interesting thing to do for a character that we understand to be, on some level, a machine, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, things are supposed to be very clear-cut. You know something or you don't. This thing is true or it is false. And for a lot of this, Breck knows a lot of things that we as humans would not know because even separate from their grand you know justice of Torin ship ai self they still are reading the world in a way that an ai mm. would right they're measuring micro expressions and stuff that like we don't do except on some intuitive level um and it's great because for so much of this we see breck being like savardin's gonna do this and savardin does and they're like yep Yep, I knew what it was. I knew what was going on. And then <laughs> sometimes it's like as Suvarden grows and yeah. changes and Breck is still like, oh, my God, why isn't she sneering at what this isn't? Which is amazing because, like, yeah, that's how that's how people react when the people around mm. us change. We're like, but you're that's not. 
Hold on. I built a composite of you, and you're not, you're following, not following the composite. Yeah, this sort of. But it is, it's it's awesome to see because I think probably, I feel like ancillary justice is the one that deals, the most obliquely with this like. Mm are you human if you're an AI, right? Like, Murderbot deals with that very directly as far as, like, being uncomfortable when people are like, you're human! And it's like, no, I'm not. Stop it. And uh, we have Moss Cap, who's like, no, we're not human, and that's good, and that's fine, and why is that bad? And But Breck, Breck has a mission. Breck is not paying attention, you know, consciously to the question of its degree of yeah, humanity yeah. and awareness. But it's so clearly communicated in terms of, yeah, clearly Breck is a fully conscious, to the extent that human means an alive conscious person, like they're a person, right? even if they're not a human. And we know that not because there's deep philosophical arguments where Breck is making a case for their humanity or lack thereof. We see it, we know it because Breck doesn't describe their anger a lot of times but they do mention it when it comes out right or we see we see the way that they're dealing with Savard and you're like yeah that's that's mm. how people react to those kinds of things you have all the data to be like oh this person is changing and I will reevaluate their behavior but you don't do that because there's other things going on here it's, you're not just a machine processing data yeah I think you I think the point that you're talking about what's more interesting is when they're Breck and they're separated from all of the data is also like you know being suddenly separated from all of the cues that you'd been accustomed to seeing like if you were just plopped somewhere and all of the the cues that helped you interpret what it means to move in the world were just gone that's what it is to yeah. exist as Breck but then even as as Justice of Torin where Justice of Torrent has all, all of that data, although Breck still has some of it, but Justice of Torrent has so much more. There are still moments when, I, I'm thinking, there's a moment where Servard is, is ordering one of the ancillaries of Justice of Torrent around, and it's, I don't know if it's clear if it's Breck specifically or not, but it's one of them. And you can tell that Stuart always was treating all of the ancillaries as not alive, as sub, quote unquote, subhuman. And so Justice of Torin just sabotages them a little bit. Yep. And there's no, there's no, there's no introspection. Like Murderbot, Murderbot is interesting as well because Murderbot is also an unreliable narrator. But it's because yeah. you see all their introspection and you see where it's misaligned. In yes. part because of how society treats them. Whereas Breck is an unreliable narrator, but is not very introspective. And you still see how society treats them, but more from this external way. So you as the reader are like, yeah, you're annoyed and you were petty about it. But mm -hmm. the, the narration style in Ancillary Justice is so emotionally removed from the most part. No, I think I think that's that's a hundred percent the case. <laughs> I have I have an unrelated thing, but okay. I need to bring it up Ooh, yes. because it has been tormenting my brain. Oh, I can't wait. There is something about robots and tea. Yeah. And I like it's this is a through line, and I don't know why it's a through line, but it is very compelling to me and I want to explore it because we have Moss Cap and our tea master. Uh, or not, what are T-Monk. T-Monk, our T-Monk sibling decks, where in the end our, like, big, beautiful denouement scene is, in fact, uh, Moss Cap making tea. Tea and ancillary justice is absolutely one of those things, right? Like, there's 100% a scene, right, where Lieutenant On is, like, back on the ship, and so is uh, Justice of Torrin slash Breck <laughs> slash One-esque. Um, and we're seeing this, like, scene of the officer's, you know, break room or whatever. And one officer says something nice about Lieutenant On, and there's a very precise description of pouring, like, an extra 1.1 centimeter of tea. And then one of the books that um, I tried to track down, I did track down a selection of it, uh, was The Tea Master and the Detective by Aliette de Baudard, mm. which is a uh, Sherlock Holmes retelling where Sherlock is a human person and Watson is a spaceship 
that makes tea mm. that helps people travel yes. through space. I have no uh, conclusions <laughs> on this front. I just needed to name this because I think it's really interesting and compelling. And maybe it's just that duality of, like, maybe this is this is part of what, you know, this sort of new generation of synthetic protagonists and stories that highlight mm. them are doing is connecting artificial intelligence and robots with things that they never got connected with before with parts of our human experience that we used to just very much deny those stories from touching on or connecting yeah. with, right? Like, that's part of what Psalm for the Wild built is such a beautiful, like, nature-focused feelings and abs just, like, a beautiful, peaceful... It really does feel like you're getting a tea service, right? Like, this book is saying, here, mm -hmm. come sit down, I will make you some tea, I will listen to your problems, and I will try to offer some wisdom. Also, it's about a robot in addition to your your team yeah mark. and i think that's the case with so many of these right like murderbot i haven't yet found any tea but i think there's an argument to be made that like the soap opera stuff is sort of a version of it right we haven't gotten to see robots watching netflix before that was mm -hmm. not part of the classic again whether the stories of like dangerous ai or helpful ai AI didn't get to drink tea. They didn't get to watch television. They didn't get to, or be part of stories where those were the things we wanted to talk about, right? Like robots were only in stories that were about robots. Yeah. And I think like there's something to be said for genre and tone here too. Like these are all sci-fi because they have futuristic robots, but A Psalm for the Wild Built has almost kind of like fairy tale or fable vibes mm -hmm. to it. Murderbot... It, a little bit more like classic sci-fi but also has just like such a comedy it to it at points that it i does. love it sort of does feel like it's kind of a soap opera version mm -hmm. of this and then ancillary justice is like deep dramatic sweeping like fantasy or war novel epic with robots and this like sci-fi element and i love that because it does feel like there's an expansion there which is great when we remember that like Robots so often, these synthetic protagonists are vehicles for exploring humanity and identity. And they can be in all kinds of genres because we use all those genres mm -hmm. to explore humanity and identity. Yeah. Going back to your point about tea, off the top of my noggin, <laughs> here's <laughs> why I think it's so interesting to include. At the beginning yes, of the podcast, you were talking about rituals rituals and ceremonies yes. and tea as a drink there are a lot of ceremonies and rituals around it there's a cultural significance yeah. to it in in a way that a lot of other drinks maybe not as widely have like tea mm -hmm. widely has a has a cultural ritualistic or ceremonial significance um mm -hmm. and so of course in and a psalm for the wild built the main character the tea monk talks about how tea is is part of serving uh, a god the god of small comforts it's you know just a warm cup of tea can relax you can help you open up can be therapeutic and the process of preparing it for someone shows care and then in yeah. ancillary justice you know there's a little bit of they're living in a world that is both like i guess more equal quote unquote in a sense from a gender perspective but still very hierarchical and so the tea is showing mm -hmm. some of that hierarchy and some of the personal feelings and then i did read the tea master and the detective and the the ship in order to make this the tea or the medicine to allow people to go into deep space has to have a very intimate knowledge not only of the physicality of of the human that they're preparing it for uh but mm -hmm. also the mental state there there's something intimate about it that requires you to get to know whoever you're preparing mm. it for um and i think maybe that could be could be part of it yeah no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, 
it's it's reminding me of if, like if you've you've heard that sort of uh i mean i guess it's sort of like an like an old joke about how whenever we're looking at um like cultural artifacts from civilizations human civilizations long gone almost everything we don't know we're like eh, probably for <laughs> ceremonial purposes probably for a ritual of some kind and like on the one hand it's funny because like who knows right but we assume probably some sort of ceremony probably some sort of ritual and it's amusing to think about you know what future archaeologists and anthropologists would be like mm, this was part of a this was part of a ritual for watching Netflix and uh but there is I think something to be said for there is something that I like the idea of ceremony and ritual mm. is something that I think we understand to be very human or at least very focused mm-hmm. on life right like I think a lot of that fascination can come from that's something that requires the opposite of machines right not AI is not robots because clearly these are things that are not just machines. This is, and that I think you're right. Like that can be such an interesting counterpoint to the efficiency, the productivity, mm-hmm. the uh, clarity of purpose that we assign mentally to machines. So showing these things that ostensibly come from those same material source of being coded in some fashion or having digital consciousness in some fashion but engaging with rituals or ceremonies that are so separate from those ideas of efficiency and productivity. They're much more about creating space and creating meaning and care. I think, I think you are onto something. I think that's, I think that's gotta be it. Yeah. I think moving away from, I think a lot of previous robot narratives were very focused around, like you said, this productivity, labor, that sort of thing. Um, but also kind of beyond moving toward just this, I guess, the sense of openness, um, and, uh, freedom Mm -hmm. and ability to kind of relax is also community. Like he is very communal. I think there are a lot of robot characters previously, community maybe wasn't always as much of an emphasis that's not always true Mm -hmm. but i I think that's part of why in a song for the wild built having the robot uh, carry out the tea ceremony is so so powerful because in the narratives where there there is community it's always humanity welcoming the robots into our community whereas in this one it's the robot saying i will i've learned something about your your culture essentially and now this is part of me welcoming you into a new way of thinking so beautiful it's really great i love it yeah and i i think as we alluded to earlier especially with the tweet that we mentioned there's still so much to explore and yeah sometimes synthetic life narratives remind us more sharply of how our limiting our own imagination can lead us away from a more interesting inclusive future and Mm -hmm. there's still so much more to imagine and that's part of what makes these narratives exciting and interesting yeah it it certainly feels like there's more places to take it but i think also from a narrative perspective there is again there is something that i think is true for a lot of different stories which is that a lot of times the stories that best get at the like big overarching questions are not the ones that like Mm -hmm. go straight at those questions right robots or no it is sometimes just kind of boring to read a book that's like, so is it fate mm. or free will? You know, like, is this the whole book? Because, like, I already know that there isn't an answer to this question, at least not one I'm going to find satisfying because right. it's going to feel simplistic. But you can explore a question if you tell a story about something else that raises the question rather than says, the arc of the story is this question that doesn't actually have an answer we can find here. 
And so similarly, I think like that's also just, there's just an added complexity to a story that doesn't say, is a robot really a person? And it's like, can we, if you just go straight at that, you get a yes or a no, and those are boring single word answers. If instead you go, the question of this story is, can this particular synthetic protagonist save the, save, you know, this world from an emperor split into pieces that's going to raise some interesting questions about the nature of humanity and consciousness and identity not because but but very specifically because you picked a different thing to go towards that it rests on those foundational questions but not like you're sitting here and you're like i'm finally gonna answer (laughs) does true love save the day and you're like yeah okay cool bud i I think i've an oversimplified version of what you just said is plot questions should be yes, no. Theme questions should be open. And actually the the real, yes. when themes are the strongest, it's when they are raising a question rather than answering a question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think the thing, the ancillary point to that <laughs> might be that your plot questions and your theme questions should be absolutely deeply mm-hmm. related, but mm-hmm. different, right? Otherwise, you are going to be too simplistic because you do want you want yes no answers for the plot, and you want open ended worlds to explore with your theme. So if the thing is, is data really a person? Like, first of all, no shade or slack on star trek because that's delightful and data's a delight and a great character and i love what they've done with it but it's true Mm -hmm. that a lot of that feels older Mm -hmm. now because so many of the questions in the data episode it's the same question the plot question is the theme question can data figure out how to be human yes yes yep yeah yeah uh i think we're actually about at time so this was a really perfect way to to wrap it up. I think we just kind of tied nicely into a bow what we've learned through this discussion or one of the major things we've taken away. Thank you so much for wandering with us today. Uh, We hope you had a great time discussing this. If you have read any of these books, please share your thoughts with us. If you have thoughts about synthetic life, about tea, about how to explore themes in a meaningful way, you can reach out to us on our Twitter at WorkTitlePod. That's at Work, 